Welcome everyone to season two, episode 53 of the Premier Pod. I'm your host, Yash Bika. Join with me is my co-host, Tyler Chan. In this episode, we have some breaking news to break. It's oddly enough, last week we were breaking the Pochettino news. Not really breaking, but it happened as the day we recorded it. And luckily for us, um, and unlucky for Unai Emery, Arsenal have officially sacked Unai Emery and they have named Freddie Lundberg as the interim head coach for their team. Um, this coming off their 2-1 defeat against Frankfurt in the Europa League. Reports were that Unai Emery's fate was already sealed this past weekend after they drew 2-2 to Southampton at home in the Emirates. So um, a sacking that was sort of a long time coming if you asked any Arsenal fan or even neutral supporter. I think everyone kind of saw this coming. And officially, it was announced by the Arsenal board that they did it. Huge credits to them. Um, unfortunately, no, I, I don't know. For me, at least, I don't like to see anyone get sacked, but Unai Emery, I think he'll land someplace else, hopefully back in Spain, where maybe he can thrive a little bit more there. But the Arsenal job just really wasn't meant for him. Couldn't really take advantage of the squad he had. And now Arsenal are under the guidance of Freddie Lundberg. And talking to a lot of Arsenal fans, and even seeing Arsenal fans on YouTube, they are a big fan of this guy. But... The board has said that they're going to take their time and they're going to make sure they have a thorough and vetting process in terms of finding their next manager, whether that is Lundberg or a new person. So initial thoughts, Tyler? Right now, it's looking like Arsenal are doing the Manchester United and Chelsea tactic where they're just hiring a former legend of the club to be their interim manager and then maybe he'll be the long-term head coach if they go on a huge run. But this is this is pretty huge for Arsenal because this is something where even last week when we were just talking about it, we weren't really sure if Arsenal were really going to keep Unai Emery throughout the entire season no matter what happens because who would they have to replace him? And ultimately, sure enough, now we know it's going to be Lundberg. And this is a bit of a surprise for me because given Arsenal right now and the squad they have and what they can challenge for, it looked like they could be a main contender for the Europa League. And top four is a little iffy there. But right now, with Lundberg, I don't really know what the expectations are for Arsenal now. Like, is it still the same in terms of maybe trying to win the Europa League and then trying to hit top four still? Or is it just trying to ride out the season and then hopefully get top six? But with Lundberg, I really don't know how this squad is going to play out now. What do you think, Yesh? I don't know. I think um, as we saw last year with Jose Mourinho when the results were not falling, ultimately United waited a lot longer to sack Jose Mourinho. I mean, it was in the middle of December, but obviously Arsenal didn't want to wait that long. And they're pretty much, if you were to sack a manager, this would probably be the best time because you have a chance for this new manager to have that month of December where a bunch of fixtures are coming in. And obviously, whenever you do sack a manager, there's always the new manager bounce. And I think we're going to see that from Arsenal. I think a lot of fans are happy because I think Lindbergh said that he wants to play attacking style, attacking football, and just let the players play. Um, something that we saw Ole Gunnar Solskjaer kind of do as interim head manager. And it helped because they went on a 12-match unbeaten streak. And they were pretty much unstoppable at certain points because they just kept playing free-flowing, attacking football. And then, you know, with their squad, they have Aubameyang, Lacazette, Pepe, Ozil, Torreira, um, I think a lot of fans are going to be happy because maybe Lindbergh will probably play these players in the position that they were kind of signed to play in. Uh, we saw a lot of times that Emery would play Torreya sort of like a box-to-box midfielder or attacking midfielder instead of playing him as a defensive midfielder or having Ozil played in different positions or never playing or Nicolas Pepe on the bench a lot of times. I think we may see that Lindbergh would kind of unsimplified and just make things very simple for him and the team and just let the players play in their natural positions and kind of see where it takes them. Because if you look at their schedule, they have Norwich away, which is their upcoming game, and they host Brighton. Then they're going away to West Ham. Then they play the final Europa League match. And then the big game is when they host Manchester City. So in reality, they have three winnable games in the Premier League to kind of get things kickstarted for them in the Premier League. And I think this is a big call for Arsenal, but I think it's the right one, ultimately. And then, after you mentioned the Europa League game, they're kind of already set in the group stages, too, in terms of the way Emery 
had them in the group already in terms of the amount of points they had. So they're already through basically to the playoffs for that. So this is a good kind of run of games for Lundberg to kind of get some momentum into the league, as you mentioned. But at the same time, all these games are just so close to each other too in the month of December. In December, everything just goes wild, especially at the end when teams are playing three, four matches within just mm-hmm. two weeks. So that's really going to test not only squad depth, but also the tactics that the manager has, not only just Lundberg, but other managers as well in the Premier League, because now they have to worry about squad fitness and injuries and also just making sure that the players mentally are ready to go because a lot of times when we're going into these string of games, it's going to be a lot of just tired minds and just going in at like 80% rather than 100 So he's going to have to take this into account given the players Unai Emery did play. I'm not sure if Lundberg's going to bring in any players from the squad that maybe was like in purgatory <laughs> <laughs> or just bring out some players that really kind of exemplified his kind of, you know, playing style where it's just more free-flowing. But it's going to be interesting to see how he sets up the team. I hope it will be like what most people want to see from this Arsenal squad in terms of what Una Emery kind of tried to do near the end of his, his tenure where it was Pepe on the right, Aubameyang on the left, and then Lacazette in the middle, and then Ozil right behind them. That's going to be something that hopefully we'll see again and then Maybe Terea plays yeah. in his correct position, and then you have, as you mentioned. You could have Bellerin on the right, Tyranny on the mm-hmm. left. Uh, and then for the center backs, I mean, that's kind of a toss-up. But maybe Callum Chambers and, you know, if Rob Holding could finally cement his plays, maybe that. Because Socrates and David Luiz really haven't been doing it and haven't been haven't been that, uh, that great since they played for Arsenal. They've had their moments, mm-hmm. but hopefully, um, for neutrals at least, we could see Arsenal kind of get back to maybe becoming a top four side again and just challenging for those top four places and just performing well in cup games because we saw with Emery, even in the in the FA Cup and Carabao Cup, he just had a tendency to get knocked out pretty quickly. So, I mean, obviously Europa League is a little bit different, but those League Cups, those are really important. But I think it was a good, I think it was the correct decision. Um, and I'm really excited, but this the game that did seal his fate was that 2-2 draw against Southampton. We watched it together and, um, and this game was kind of boring. Uh, we saw Arsenal just basically uh, concede concede a late goal. And honestly, if Southampton didn't miss, you know, five million chances, Southampton should have probably won this game. And Arsenal ultimately got pretty lucky to get get a draw from this one. But that's kind of been the telltale signs of Unai Emery's run of the past seven games. It's just getting very lucky to sneak out a draw or basically hoping that the other team doesn't convert all the chances that they've missed. And that's ultimately why they ended up drawing 2-2 because it should have been a Southampton win. Mm-hmm. And do you find it a little weird that Arsenal board did not sack Unai Emery until after the Frankfurt game, despite his fate being sealed after that Premier League draw against Southampton? Yeah, I find it a bit odd because I, I the article I read said that after the Southampton game, I think some of the owners met actually in America and they basically decided on his fate and... Unai Emery basically came up to training today just as normal, then he got a phone call and had to meet with the board, and that's basically where he found out he got sacked. But credit to him, he ended it very professionally. But I, I, I don't know if you already knew his fate was sealed. I don't know why you would wait. Maybe because you wouldn't want to throw an interim manager in a Europa League match like that, but I don't know. Uh, maybe there wasn't enough turnaround time, but I, I really don't know what their thinking was, why they didn't want to sack Emery after the Southampton game maybe they were just trying to fa- finalize some details um I I don't know it, it's it's a tough decision I I don't know what what was going on there because we saw with Spurs they basically just sacked Pochettino and hired Mourinho I don't know if what was going on with the Arsenal board right now um in terms of why they didn't sack him after the Southampton game mm-hmm. that just that's just a little weird to me <laughs> because it's like why why wait it's kind of like a theme from the last podcast. I was like, why why wait for a sacking if you know it's going to eventually come? Mm-hmm. And that's something we've been alluding with Arsenal for like the past couple of months now in terms of their results and just the Arsenal fans being so toxic with the club. And now with Xhaka as well, with Emery out and Lundberg in, 
Jaka, he's still in this limbo stage where it's like he's not really good with the fans and the rest of the team, it looks like. So do you think Jaka's still on the way out in January or do you think Lundberg might find a way to put him back in? Because he was a captain for the team. But, you know, as interim managers come in, they might assign someone else as captain. But I still think Jaka's going to be on his way out because like after being like toxic not only to like the fans but to like the other players it's like if you have like that kind of bad rep and he didn't really rebound correctly from it, he didn't really apologize correctly in like the most professional or proper way I think I still see him out but what do you think no I think um I think he'll definitely be out because we've seen it anytime he comes on the pitch or anytime he warms up and he leaves Arsenal fans start cheering I I think a lot of Arsenal fans are just kind of done with him um I think no one really appreciated his apology, and I didn't really either because it was kind of a PR apology, if you were to ask me. I mean, he just basically wrote a half-hearted letter. Um, you know, I don't know. I just didn't really that for a former club captain that didn't just seem that didn't seem right. Um, it's obvious he doesn't really have the quality to be at Arsenal in the first place. And I think once the January transfer window rolls around, I think we'll probably see him leave the club. I think Newcastle are kind of interested in signing him. So that could potentially be a landing spot for him. But I don't expect Lindbergh to um, have Jaka in the lineup again or have him inserted as a captain again. Because I think players, fans, and everyone is kind of fed up with uh, Jaka, Jaka being at Arsenal right now. I'm even fed up with Jaka being at Arsenal. It's like, man, <laughs> we're not even fans of Arsenal. Look at this. I know it's a, it's a. They, they definitely don't won't miss him in the midfield. I would say that. But as an interim manager, I would say this: what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer kind of did, he kind of let the players, like the attacking players, play free. But there were a lot of times he was not ruthless, but you could definitely tell that under interim manager that he was starting to find out the players that actually wanted to play for the club. And, you know, I think that's something that's really important for Arsenal during this time, because a lot of fans on Twitter kind of say that a lot of these Arsenal players just kind of play for a paycheck and they don't really pay play for the club or play for, to play for each other. I think under the, under Freddie Lundberg, we might see that he may start to pick out these players that aren't really playing for the team and are just kind of playing for themselves and I wouldn't be surprised if those players start riding the bench a little bit more and eventually ended up being sold in the summer or even January transfer window at some point. Um, because that that's something Ole Gunnar Solskjaer kind of found out with, you know, players like Lukaku, I mean, Alexi Sanchez at certain points. Um, obviously, Ander Herrera had to leave on the free. But kind of the process would be like picking out a lot of the dead wood and kind of rebuilding from there. But don't be surprised if something like that ends up happening at Arsenal. But Switching gears a little bit, um, a big news coming out of the Liverpool camp is Fabinho. Their world-class holding midfielder has actually suffered an ankle ligament damage, I believe, against the against Napoli in their Champions League game on Wednesday, and he could miss up to eight weeks. Um, this is a big loss for Liverpool because obviously if you lose any team, if you lose your starting holding midfielder, it's a huge loss. I mean, obviously McTominay is not the same level as Fabinho, but as soon as McTominay got inserted out of the got out of the lineup due to injury, the United's midfield kind of faltered. Uh, Tyler, what is your initial reaction to Fabinho? I don't, I'm not sure. I'm sure it's not too happy right now. Because uh, <laughs> right now, whenever you think of missing eight weeks, that is about missing maybe six to eight games during the season. Yeah. But this particular part of the season, oh. that's basically missing. I would say one. Like, four to uh, one third of the season's games because yeah. you play so many games in December. That's like around eight games in December itself. So already out of like the 30, 38 games in Premier League, that is that's a that's a massive amount to miss. That is basically a fourth of the, the season. And sure enough, he will be missing the Red Bull Salzburg matchup in the Champions League as well. So that'll be a huge loss because Salzburg is one of those teams where you could decide what team in the group finishes first, second, or maybe even doesn't even need to get out of the group. So this is a big, big loss for Liverpool, in my opinion, because there's not really any other player on the team that can replace him exactly. Because he's a very pure center defensive mid who's one of the best in his position. And Liverpool don't really have another player that can do that. We have other 
holding midfielders, you know, like Henderson, Wijnaldum, Keita, but none with the defensive prowess as Fabinho. So without him in the squad, especially going into this holiday season, I'm a little nervous, not going to lie. If Liverpool drop points, I could see that happening now yeah. because without him in front of the back four, that does change up mm-hmm. the way Klopp plays because whenever you see Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold like bomb forward, usually it's Fabinho who drops back and makes it a little bit of a back three with Van Dijk and either Matip or Lovren behind him. So this kind of changes Klopp's tactics going into the holiday season. But at the same time, it might force Klopp to be a little bit more attacking-minded in terms of his setup where now he might have to start Chamberlain in the center of attacking mid, or maybe actually bring Keita back into the squad, kind of force his way in, despite maybe having some fitness issues. Maybe have James Milner <laughs> come back every <laughs> once in a while too, but it's going to be a big, big decision for Klopp to make because now is a very pivotal moment because even last season, this is where the title kind of flipped, where it was very back and forth between Manchester City and Liverpool, and then Liverpool did have the advantage going into Christmas, but then after Christmas, yeah. it was all Man City. Oh, yeah. So, although it looks like it's like, oh, it's just, you know, star player getting hurt for eight weeks, this is actually, to me, in my opinion, a very significant injury to the squad and maybe title hopes as well. Yeah, I was I was going to say that um, with Liverpool's defense, especially in the Champions League, they've leaked in a couple of goals. Premier League, obviously, they're still pretty strong defensively, but... Do you see the defensive strength of Liverpool kind of faltering a little bit um, with the loss of Fabinho? Yes, and not only that, but without Matip now for who knows how long. I don't know why. Like Klopp is very like quiet in terms of when players will come back from injury. And it kind of makes sense so other managers can't really get an idea of what their team setup will be. But also at the same time, it gives the players time to really recuperate and feel comfortable to come back on their own time rather than try to like force their way back in or really feel rushed to come back and maybe injure themselves even more. So it's good that Klopp, you know, does give the time for players to come back from injury properly. Like that's what we saw of Ali Sun and we have enough players to really cover for them. Not, at, you know, one-to-one exact cover or replacement or substitute into the squad, but we have enough players to at least get results as we saw of Adrian during the first part of the season. But even now I'm a little, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> it's just, man. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I would be nervous too. I mean, that's a huge position you're losing right there. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how Liverpool do it. Cause in their match against Crystal Palace, they end up pulling off, pulling away with the, uh, pulling out a two, one win, but Again, it was sort of this late victory, and it was a scrappy victory in certain certain sense. But um, you know, they ended up getting the win. But in games like this, you know, these close games, it does you know having that holding midfielder? I know he may not be the one creating a lot of the chances, but he still has you know sort of that that defensive prowess. You said to sn- the sniff out attacks. That's sort of like Chelsea losing Conte or Barcelona losing Busquets. That type of ilk, where you know if you lose your holding midfielder, it it's hard to kind of replace him right now and kind of find a replacement for him. And I could see why you're very nervous because this is the time of the year where fixtures just come in like crazy. And it just seems like every top four, like the quote unquote top six team is placing every other top six team during this time period. So that will be something to watch for, but um, mm-hmm. kind of going into the act, the games from this past weekend, I know we talked about the Liverpool game and Arsenal game, but Jose Mourinho finally made his return in the Premier League. He ended up getting a 3-2 win against West Ham. Um, a huge win for him, but probably won't be too happy with the defense defensive issues because I believe at one point they had a 3-0 lead and they ended up letting in two late goals. And at one point it seemed like, you know, maybe West Ham could tie this game. But uh, with his first match in charge, I saw that he chose to start Eric Dyer in the Champions League match. He was actually losing at one point and started Eric Dyer, but ripped him off at halftime. I could see what he's trying to do. He's trying to turn Eric Dyer into that holding midfield position that he's so famously had everywhere he's been. I mean, at Man United, he basically brought in Matic just to play that holding midfielder to allow his other players to play freely. At Chelsea, um, Matic was there. 
And, you know, he's always had players like that that can just hold the midfield for him. But um, with Tottenham, there really isn't like that quote-unquote holding midfielder. I know Eric Dyer could play there, but Eric Dyer has looked really rusty. He misplaced a lot of passes and just looked kind of wild and rash a lot of times. Um, so I, I don't really see where how he could kind of develop into a holding midfielder. I think that's something may, they may need to go in in the January transfer market and start buying and looking at a holding midfielder. But other than that, I thought it was good. He's kind of allowed Son and Kane and Mora starting those front three. Erickson, hopefully he can get him back into being a uh, starting 11 player. Maybe he can get him right with the contract situation and all that. And if that's a, if, if he can do that, that's a huge win for him. But you know, Jose said that he's really liked the squad from the beginning, so I'm not surprised to see him uh, start thriving with Tottenham right now. But to solve Tottenham's holding midfielder issue that you know Jose Mourinho has to have in terms of his tactics, I guess the the main solution is to get Nemanja Matic to Tottenham. Then, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a there's been jokes that that, that could happen, or Fellaini oh, bring no. Fellaini back as a oh, super sub. <laughs> But in terms of the players he does have, he does also have Ndombele, Musa Suzoko, and also Harry Winks. And I feel like one of those three players could be a very good holding midfielder. I'm thinking more Ndombele. But Eric Dyer, of course, he's so he's kind of like a pseudo center back and center defensive mid where you can't really tell what he prefers. And the thing is, like he, I feel like he's not really good at either position. He's just kind of like, average but he can play both positions which makes him valuable to a team yeah he's very very diversified in terms of his position it's kind of like Fabinho but not as good (laughs) (laughs) I remember back in the days like a few years ago Eric Dyer was one of those up-and-coming players that he had the potential to be one of the best he's like oh this guy he's gonna be he's gonna be up there he's gonna be one of those Paul Scholes one of those Roy Keane like like just built rock kind of players in the back but I don't know. He hasn't. He hasn't really made that much of an impact into the Tottenham squad recently, especially even last season. He was just mostly on the bench. But maybe under Jose Mourinho, under his tutelage, maybe he could become that Nemanja Matić kind of like player. I still don't really see it. I still think it should be Endombele because, despite Endombele being like a smaller kind of player, where Eric Dyer is, you know, more like a tank. He's a lot bigger, a lot stronger. Mourinho does does value those like physically huge players because I remember at United his wall was just Marwan Fellaini, Pogba, Matic, Bailly. I mean it was a massive wall. I mean he always prefers to have like those physically big players mm-hmm. on his side. And you know you got that with Musa Suzuko for sure. But mm-hmm. it will be interesting to see what he does with this team because this is a team that also is very unchanged for the past several years and. Mm-hmm. It'd be kind of weird to say, it's like, all right, that player should be, you know, transferred out. That player probably will be transferred out. This player will probably play this kind of position. It'll be kind of interesting to see. But for sure, what we do know is that he's probably definitely going to change the defense because just based on these first initial two games, we see, I've already seen some memes on Twitter where whenever you see a new manager come in, usually a team, well, most of the time, would turn up in terms of like the players like oh now I gotta like show out for the new manager make sure I don't you know get the boot or ride the pine so I gotta make sure I, I go I go <laughs> ham you know really show my best and we saw that with the attack we saw them scoring three goals and then after that you know as you mentioned they conceded two and then that's when Jose Mourinho probably is like ah so it's the defense that's the issue that's the issue <laughs> <laughs> so and he is a he is a they they say he's a very a master class you know in terms of making great defensive so mm-hmm. this could be that situation for him but i was gonna say how do how does Mourinho stop spurs from spurring you know the famous spurring that you know they always just end up messing things up at the end how do you how does Mourinho stop that i think for now you have to look at what klopp did at liverpool because that's kind of what happened with liverpool where they made it through so many competitions so many europe like I remember in particular, just in orders, Europa League final, you know, Carabao Cup final, Champions League final, missing the Premier League. Just so many things where Liverpool just became, just end up in second in all these competitions. And then finally Klopp developed a team and developed players to overcome all these 
hurdles and then eventually win the Champions League last season. And we're seeing this season, a lot of times Liverpool are winning games 2-1 from being 1-0 down initially first, and then they're just coming back in the last 10 minutes of the game to get the three points. And Liverpool are still undefeated in the league because of this kind of mentality. And this is a mentality that I don't feel Spurs have right now in terms of the players they have and just the overall mindset of the team. And that will have to come in terms of um, kind of bringing in the right players for that. So certain players on the team, it's hard to really pinpoint on this squad in particular which players you feel like maybe one have that clutch mindset, that mindset to really come in clutch and just get something going in the last maybe 10 minutes of a game when you need that result. Like, you know, like a Divock Origi. Like you see it in maybe Lucas Mora, one of those players that, you know, have come in clutch, especially in Champions League last season when he basically got that hat trick against Ajax oh, yeah. and put him into the final. So it's like one of those kind of players where they have that clutch mindset to really come in. Or like, you know, the Atlanta Hawks kind of mentality where it's like you have Trey Young, <laughs> like Ice Trey. Oh, yeah. So I mean, you know, I could definitely see like Harry Kane being that type of player. Maybe Deli Ali because he has kind of awoken Deli Ali, and maybe that could be those those two guys could be that that kind of that leader leaders like that leadership role take on taking on that leadership role and just helping this team no matter what. But you know, it, 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 you know that's something we kind of have to watch out for, and they have some tough fixtures ahead, so we got to look at that. But going into the Man City versus Chelsea match could probably be the biggest game of the weekend, but obviously there's so much other news that this game kind of got overshadowed. City ended up picking up a 2-1 win, but Chelsea, again, they started off really well, started off on top, pretty much on fire, and then all of a sudden City, Mara scores a a great goal, and then basically, you know, Chelsea answered back, but then City ended up getting that win. But with Frank Lampard, this is... Um, another loss against the quote-unquote Big Six. He's lost against United, um, Man United, um, at the opening day of the weekend, lost against Liverpool, and now City. And not to mention, he did lose against Manchester United in the Carabao Cup as well. Um, is this a concern for the Chelsea side that they can't get it done in the big games, but they are getting it done against kind of the lower opposition? In my opinion, I don't think it's an issue for now because this season, the expectations for this Chelsea squad, this very young Chelsea squad of no transferred in players, besides Christian Pulisic, it's still very much just, you know, do the best you can this season and we'll see how Frank Lampard, you know, can carry, how far he can carry the team this season. And there's not really an expectation. It's like, oh, they got to finish top four. Oh, they got to get through to like the semifinals in the Champions League or maybe even win the Europa League if they end up parachuting into there. But I think for Chelsea, losing to big teams like Liverpool, Manchester City, and even Manchester United now, despite their current situation, it's not really too bad because given their position in the table right now where they were still top half, like top six right now, they are still getting the results against teams that you expect Chelsea to get results from. And when you look at other teams, like, say, Tottenham or Manchester United, <laughs> when they face, like, a certain team like Bournemouth or something or someone, or, say, like, a Watford, all of a sudden you see them draw or you see them lose against those teams that are kind of fighting a different kind of battle in the, in the Premier League where maybe they're fighting relegation or just fighting get mid-table. Not even really fighting for a top six, but you see Manchester United and, you know, even Arsenal at times falling to those kind of teams. And for Chelsea, though, most of the time, you see them getting those three points against, say, Watford or Newcastle. You see Chelsea actually getting the results. And although they're not beating the top six right now, quote-unquote top six now, even though the top six is all over the place in terms of who should be in it really. And like, is Leicester be in it? I still think Leicester should be in it. But in terms of that, I don't really think it's too bad of an issue for Frank Lampard because given his squad and the amount of players he had, like given the players he has also for who he can work with, he's kind of developed a team based on what he's been given and then he's just gotten results from them. It's not really maybe what Frank Lampard wants in terms of his tactics for what would be the for sure 100% Frank Lampard tactic. 
and team setup and team player team selection things like that but he's developed a team based on the players he had and he's gotten results so I think for now for given Chelsea's expectations for this season I think it shouldn't be a problem for mm. Lampard yeah I I um I I, I kind of agree with that my only concern is that we see I know Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has had a summer transfer window and we've seen that he struggled a lot of times against facing the smaller opposition but he does have big wins against both times against Chelsea and he drew a, a good match against Liverpool 1-1 um I think it's it's just interesting how kind of like United have played against the big six and then Chelsea have done against the big six obviously it's something to kind of look out for, look out for right now but you know, I, I kind of agree with Tyler. It's not the biggest concern, but I think it's something worth pointing out because I think this Chelsea team is good enough to beat some of these top six opponents. And right now they're just not getting the job done. I don't know if it's the style of play where it's kind of really run and gun and just go as high intensity as you can for the first 10 minutes and try to hit them on the back foot. I think a lot of times when you do play that way, it can hurt you because these big teams have the stamina and have the energy to kind of sustain a lot of pressure. Um, but that's just something to look out for right now. But going into the battle of the United, Sheffield United versus Manchester United, um, the the only game on Sunday finished 3-3, um, an absolute thrilling match. Um, as a United fan, it did hurt at the end because they were 3-2 up and ended up conceding a late goal to make it 3-3. But first of all, this game started off so poorly for Manchester United. Phil Jones started. All right. I don't understand why Phil Jones is in a starting lineup for Manchester United. Everyone knows this guy is just not good anymore. He's just not good at all. I don't think he was good at all to start off. He's very injury prone. He makes mistakes all the time. I mean, it's just guaranteed when he starts or plays, there's going to be a mistake. And for some reason, he just keeps getting picked. I think it was a horrible mistake by Solskjaer to pick Phil Jones. I would have much rather seen Rojo. Or I wish we would have loaned out Phil Jones because Chris Smalling is way better Chris Smalling was way better than Phil Jones. I think any United fan could tell you that. But yeah. after the 70 minutes, the game was a lot better. Right, cool. The youngsters scored goals with Brandon Williams, Mason Greenwood, and Marcus Rashford. However, a lot of people are scrutinizing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for um, once they were 3-2 up. He did bring on Axel Twanzebe and took off Martial. And in order to try to kill the game off and just secure the 3-2 win instead of going forward and attacking for the 4-2, it's kind of a hit and miss in terms of what I feel about it because... You know, at that time where they're making that comeback, Fred and Pereira were the only players in the midfield. And obviously, once you United got that and got the comeback and, you know, were leading, Sheffield United were obviously going to throw a lot of players forward. And I could see his um, thinking in terms of you can't expect Fred and Pereira to handle the amount of pressure that was going to be thrown at them. And I see why he brought on another defender to make amends for that. But... Unfortunately, the defense like the defense is still not fixed for United. They do have mental lapses, and I think again they let in a cross, and then Ollie McBurn, I think that was his name, ends up getting a hold of it and just hitting it back in the back of the net, and ends up being becoming a three three draw instead of a three two win for Manchester United. So they did really well in terms of making a comeback, but um, I just like to see that intensity to start off the game. I think he just made. I, I'm I'm glad Solskjaer realized his mistake in terms of starting Phil Jones and then subbed him off at halftime. But I think you know he needs to stop making those selection mistakes and just trusting the team he has, um, because we've seen that you know once the team kind of gets going, they are you know fairly talented enough to start scoring goals. I think. It's just a matter of just trusting the system you have and stop mis mischanging systems. Um, and I think sticking with the four three three or four two three one, depending on what he likes to play, I think that's the best system for United right now. And I just like to see the intensity starting off the match. I just need to see that intensity all the time. <laughs> At the same time, I think Oligan and Zoshar maybe started Phil Jones so he can show other clubs that, hey, we have this player who he's somewhat fit. If you want to buy him in January, there he <laughs> is. Although he didn't perform as well as hopefully uh, Ole hoped for and maybe his stock dropped a little bit. But it shows like, hey, we still have him if anyone wants him. But I want to also point out in this game, it was, it was very... It was a very risky game for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to actually start Phil Jones in as well because this is a top half 
table battle where Sheffield going into this match was like top six. So for Manchester United, this should be a very big red alarm for them where it's like, oh, this is a match where we could drop points. And they did drop points. They dropped two points. And they had to come back for this. And it was just very, it was very kind of panicked in terms of like, oh, shoot, we're, we're down 2-0. It's like, we just got to come back now. But I also wanted to point out that John Fleck for Sheffield United, you don't really highlight that many players for Sheffield because, to be honest, not many people know that many players on Sheffield. When you show the average person who's watched the Premier League for the past even 10 years, it's like, all right, here's Sheffield United. Look at their squad. Not many people on this team people would recognize. Maybe Phil Jagielka on the bench for sure. And then Oliver McBurney, he was a player that was on Swansea a couple seasons ago when they were still in the Premier League. But when you look at the rest of the squad, it's, it's not many other players. But there's a player I do want to highlight, and this is John Fleck. John Fleck is a midfielder who got an assist and a goal this game. And when you watch him, not only in, against Manchester United, he's one of those players who potentially might go to a bigger club because he was one of those Donny Van de Beek kind of players where he, he would be able to steal the ball up from another player from pretty high up the line, pretty far, pretty far up the field as well, and then just go on a counterattack. He's one of those players that can do that for a team. And also, he's one of those players that takes the set pieces for the team. So he's one of, one of those all-in-one kind of players, one of those unsung players that you don't really think too much about. But it's like come a, to the point. grass yeah. for a whole city? Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, one of those players where you don't really think about it, but now coming to this point in the season where it's like, how is Sheffield doing this well? And it's like, oh, maybe it's because of John Fleck, one of those players. And also even Mousset, where when you saw his first goal, or not his first goal, but he set up the first goal by just out-muscling Phil Jones, just throwing Phil Jones to the ground. Oh, my gosh. That was that was a little surprising for me. But a player like that, a player where he was on Bournemouth last season, we're kind of like, oh, he's the backup, backup striker. He's not really someone to really highlight too much. It's like, oh, this is, I don't, I don't know about Sheffield right now. They just got like a third string <laughs> striker from a mid-table team. I'm not sure if they're going to do too well, but Mousse is really proving his doubters wrong, including myself. So it's like little, it's little things like that that's really showing that Sheffield are more contenders to stay in the Premier League then we kind of give them credit for at the very beginning of the season because now they're getting 3-3 results against Manchester United given you know Manchester United are struggling a bit right now but to do this consistently it's something that we have to really highlight oh yeah yep um and also to kind of go into Manchester United from my take for a question that you brought up yes for it's they were 3-2 up do we be greedy and go for more goals from there? Or do we, you know, park the bus and try to just hold a 3-2? In real life, in real life soccer, compared to, say, like FIFA, <laughs> I would say most managers would go try to protect a lead. Like, you see that with Klopp a lot, where whenever you see a 2-1, whenever the team gets the 2-1 lead, <laughs> especially this season he would bring in joe gomez and then he would kind of like ride out the rest of the game just kind of kill off the game kill off the momentum of the other team and just hold out go to the other team's quarter flag with james miller and just sit there <laughs> and hold the ball as long as you can kill off as much time as you can and i think that's what oligona social tried to do that's what a lot of managers do and you know it's part of the game but he brought in twan zavi which is not the best defender, which which is uh why we see Oliver McBurney getting that 90th minute equalizer. But I think that's what he tried to do. But whenever you see, say, like in FIFA, there's a there's a mentality where uh Tex Tex, one of the best FIFA players in the world, he has this mentality where it's um, either you win by two or you lose by two. You never win or lose by just one. Mm. That means it's like you you want to always try to go all in all the time. And that's kind of like more of video game-esque kind of thinking. But in real life, I think more managers would try to go protect any lead they have if it's, say, you know, 10 minutes left in the game, which is what Manchester United had. Yeah. But no, that's just like a little... No, I, I, I agree with you because <laughs> I think there was a lot of people 
some people I know that were like, oh, I should have just killed for the game. But it was just hard for me to justify that reasoning because he literally had Fred and Pereira. Those are the only two people in the midfield. And once Sheffield United started attacking, there's no way those two could have held up their own. But I wanted to point out Pereira. I, oh, he was just so bad in this game. And he's been bad for the past couple of games too. Um, I just can't wait for Paul Pogba to come back. I, we need Mc, United def, definitely needs Scott McTominay to come back. Both of those midfielders to come back from their injuries. Um, because I think Fred has shown that when he's in a good midfield um, kind of trio or duo, he can perform well, but Pereira is just not the guy to play him alongside with because Pereira is kind of average or below average at this point because he just really hasn't shown anything to me that's like, wow, this guy could make it. Um, United definitely need to strengthen the January transfer window. And luckily, they have made claims like Solskjaer has definitely said that they want to strengthen in the tra- January transfer window. Um they're looking at signing a more experienced forward and they're looking to sign maybe another midfielder. And I think that will be a huge addition to the squad because it is very young and also it doesn't have a lot of depth. So they definitely need cover in terms of injuries and bringing in, I would love for them to bring an experienced striker because it's going to help the development of uh, Marcia and Rashford, someone that is not going to start all the time, but someone that can be on the bench and kind of, be a reliable person to bring off the bench, an experienced player that can help kill off games or help kind of shoulder the load in terms of goal scoring from the uh, young attackers. So I think having more experienced players along the lineup will definitely help this very young team in terms of developing and becoming a much better team in the future. But moving on from United, there's so many problems there, so many things we could talk about. But uh, going into the Brighton-Leicester game, Jamie Vardy once again scoring... Um, that Leicester team and Jamie Vardy are just having a party of their lifetime right now. They're reliving that 2015, <laughs> 2016 glory, and they just keep on winning. Dude, right now, Leicester are just, they're proving everyone wrong in terms of, oh, it's just a short run of form as well. They're really proving that they could be top four. I still think they could be top four because given their run that they had, despite it being... You know, a bit of a short run. There's there's second yeah. place right now. And also, if you look at the other teams in the Premier League that should be top four, quote-unquote, should be top four, like, you know, Tottenham, Arsenal, they're mid-table right now. So I'd be surprised if those teams, even with Jose Mourinho at the helm and, you know, Lundberg at Arsenal now, if they would come all the way back I, from where they are and then manage to overtake Leicester. I think... Uh, so. I For think, me, at least, yeah. I think this. Um, we we mentioned the December fixture of games. I really think it's going to be telling for teams like Sheffield and you know Leicester if they're actually going to be or Wolves if they're going to be you know sustained like top six competitors. I definitely think Wolves and Sheffield United will drop off from the top, not the top after the table, but from the top six battle after this December fixture list. And I definitely, I'm just going to say this. I see Tottenham. And Arsenal making all making their way back into the top four and Leicester City dropping off. Because one thing, Leicester, I know they have certain experienced players, but what they don't have is a lot of um, that sen- senior depth that Tottenham and Arsenal have. And I think that will help them carry them forward into this de- December transfer or not December fixture list. And because of that, I think Leicester City are going to drop off a little bit. And I could see Tottenham and Arsenal sliding into the top four from there for me i agree that wolves and sheffield will eventually drop off of the top six battle and it'll probably be in the december but i actually think leicester still have a strong chance in december because they're not in europa league or champions league and not being in either of those competitions they can just focus solely on premier league and you know carabao cup as well i'm not sure if they're still in that but they can basically just solely focus on Premier League, not only for December, but also thinking into, say, February as well. So if this being their only thing that to worry about, and also Brandon Rodgers being in this kind of position before with Liverpool, I think they're in a very good position to stay top four still. With Tottenham and Arsenal, I think Tottenham for sure, they do have a really good chance under Jose Mourinho because he knows how to get points. He knows how to get wins. He, he knows how to get the most out of the players he has. And if you can't get the players 
<laughs> the most other players and he he's very cutthroat he's like all right you're out you're in the purgatory or paul paul i'm sorry you're not playing <laughs> so it's like little things like that but i think tottenham do have a chance a big chance to get back in the top six at least relatively soon but for arsenal i still don't know with lundberg because he's just like a wild card right now I, we don't really have too much historical references or data on how lundberg mm-hmm. really manages a team and for him to manage Arsenal, such a big team right now with all the pressure and all the t- toxicity going around of all the players and the fans, it's, it's going to be a huge task for him. So I don't know about that. And because of that, I think that's why Leicester still have a chance to stay where they're at. Because like if if Leicester were to leave that top four, it's like who would take their spot? And right now, I don't really see any other any other team. So, that's interesting, that's but you know, Ole didn't have a lot of experience taking over United as interim manager, and you just saw the run he hit. And I think Arsenal are the prime team to hit a run if there is a team that can hit a run. But <laughs> um, Watford versus Burnley, Burnley getting a three 0 win. This is actually their third three 0 win in the Premier League this season. Kind of interesting because uh, you know they're Burnley, and you don't expect them to get three 0 wins all the time, and they've got three already this season. So. Big credits to them. Watford, again, struggling, looking more and more likely as each week goes by that they're going to be a guaranteed relegated team this season. Just really haven't shown any life um, up to this point. Then the Everton-Norwich game. Norwich actually picking up a 2-0 win here. Everton on a huge decline. And then Marco Silva still has a job right now, but potentially, um, can you see him getting sacked after this weekend or maybe... Could you see him getting sacked in the middle of December? Well, this is a very Everton thing where they're always, I feel like, in the cycle where they buy a lot of players in the summer. There's a lot of hype over how they'll do in the season. And then there's always a player or two that do really well. But then they always end up finishing in, say, eighth place. And with Marco Silva in right now, they're underperforming based on even that disappointing expectation of always only finishing eighth. And right now, I'm not even sure they'll finish in the top half of the table, given Marco Silva's tactics and just what, like, just the momentum, the lack of momentum they have right now. So he is also on the hot seat. Everyone knows that. The players know that. The Everyone that's a neutral knows that. Everyone that probably watches Premier League knows that. So I think with his spiral decline right now, he will eventually get sacked. But it kind of goes back to the Arsenal question of who would replace him. Maybe Big Sam comes back. Oh my gosh. But there's not really too many other managers out there currently available that I could think of immediately that could replace Marco Silva. Because right now, they're kind of a sinking ship right now. They have a lot of players that could help the team turn around. They have definitely the, the quality to get top eight for sure. But right now they're just they're just struggling. They're losing to teams like Norwich who are just in the relegation battle. Moving on to Ashton Villa versus Newcastle. Uh Villa picking up a two new win over Newcastle. Newcastle were doing kind of well in the Premier League. They picked up some decent wins and they had some decent results, but ultimately Aston Villa got this win. But now going on to previewing this upcoming week of fixtures. Um we are debating on two right here. Whether to get the Leicester City Everton game or the Manchester United Aston Villa game, I'm going to do a special surprise. We'll just go ahead and do both. Um, so we'll end up previewing four games this week, but just quick, quick, um, quick fire, quick fire. Yeah, predictions. Uh, Leicester City Everton. Leicester hosting Everton right now. I think this will be an inevitable two zero <laughs> to Leicester City. Yeah, and I think Marco Silva will be if not already even deeper into the hot seat, he's going to be basically sunken into that seat and maybe hope not hopefully, but I think he'd be fired by the yeah. end of this game. Yeah. I actually, I could see Leicester city beating Everton three nil in this game. I think Everton are just a complete downfall right now. And then Manchester United hosting Aston Villa, um, both, you know, United coming off that 3-3 draw and that 2-1 defeat to Astana in the midweek and then Aston Villa picking up that win against Newcastle. Um, I still think at home, United are a bit of a different team, especially considering how young they are. They do play a lot better at home. So I would say a 2-1 
United win over Aston Villa. Ooh. Unfortunately, Yosh, I see this <laughs> as a draw. I see this more as a 1-1. Oh, no. Although Aston Villa, they can't get results away from home. And Manchester United are home at Old Trafford. I think it'll be a 1-1 because it's just so much uncertainty going on with this United squad. And just they've just been not getting the results recently. So And Villa coming off a good 2-0 victory, I think a 1-1 could happen. Okay, and then we have top half table battle right here, Wolves versus Sheffield United. Um, this is a topsy-turvy game, but since it is at the Molyneux, I'm going to give the advantage to Wolves for a... You know what? I think it'll end up being a 1-1 draw, oh. but I would say if there was a team to get the win, I think the Wolves would do it. Sheffield haven't lost away yet, and I still think they have what it takes to really keep that streak going. I never heard of a team that does so well away, but as you just mentioned, it is a Molyneux and Wolves are also in the top six right now, but I think it'll be a draw as well, but I'm thinking more 2-2. Okay, and then last game, Norwich versus Arsenal. Freddie Lundberg getting his first match, um, coaching his first first match as um, interim manager for Arsenal. Even though Norwich picked up a good result this past weekend against Everton, the new manager bounce is going to be real. I think, honestly, this could be a thrashing. I, I could see Arsenal winning 4-1 in this game. Sort of. Sort of 4-1 at Yeah, so similar to what um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did in his first match against Cardiff City away to Cardiff. Um, that game ended up finishing 5-1, I think. I think Arsenal could end up finishing. They end up beating Norwich 4-1 in this game. Ooh. I actually see this as a high-scoring game, too, because... You always have to give it a Norwich to maybe pull out one of those big scoring games. But I think Arsenal will win this as well. I think that new manager high, we've been kind of riding that train, not only for like Jose Mourinho, but as you just mentioned for Olegan and Sochar as well. I really hope, given this Arsenal squad and their lack of defense, that Norwich will score and they'll force Arsenal go really go all in, go ham. And this game ends 4-2 to Arsenal. Nice. Well, um, that is our predictions for this weekend. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Premier Pod. I'm sorry about the late episode. We had some technical mishaps, but, you know, it all happens in the episode. But thank you guys so much for listening. Please make sure to rate, comment, subscribe. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. And, yeah, that kind of does it for us for this episode. Peace. Peace.